Welcome to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm your host, Sean Rowley, and with me is Derek Spesh. Hello. You have a good Christmas, Derek? It's been, well, it's, it's always a good Christmas. It's a time to gather with family and, and everybody kind of gathers together, all the meals. It's, it's fantastic. It's a good time of year. Yeah, friends and family and food and a few beverages and and you got oh, you got the little kids now. You yes, got, uh, so that's always fun. You got all the the treats they wanted and all the toys they yes. wanted and yeah. then some and they got spoiled. I'm sure. Oh yeah, because that's yeah. what always happens. Because uh, you know, I try to you try and tell family stop buying so many toys, mm-hmm. but they keep doing it. It's like nuts. It's uh, there's so much. You want I, them to buy the toys that keep the kids entertained, but quietly. Yes, yes. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, look, there's Uncle George, and he's buying the drum kit. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep that Uncle George and send him to you three times a week. Yeah. Um, what about yourself? Did you get something? I I, I just, I bought myself a guitar. Oh, you did, did you? <laughs> I did. <laughs> so we... I go with the drum kit Uncle George is buying. <laughs> So it, it yeah we decided that we're gonna start doing some musical instruments with the kids see if we can get Stella playing the guitar so we we got her an acoustic and an electric so it's a little mini Strat mm-hmm. it's a miniature electric guitar and I bought myself just a, a a cheapo electric guitar just to play with right yeah. just to see we've already got a piano so we're gonna start we're gonna start learning music oh the special family band yes exactly uh, right like the Partridge family but different. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Coming well, to our mitzvahs near you. And I am getting a late Christmas gift. Yeah? Yeah. As we speak, my vehicle is in the shop. Don't know what's wrong with it. And I'm hoping it's not the transmission. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I'll know uh, probably tomorrow when the dealership calls me to see. How much that gift is going to cost <laughs> yeah, you? how much that gift is going to cost. Uh... The gift that keeps on giving. That's what a car is. Awesome. Awesome. Is this from when the uh, the planet moved and hit your car on the curb? Is that yes. the one? Yeah. Before I put my winter tires on my car, it snowed. I slid sideways into a curve, probably about 20 kilometers an hour, and it ruined a, bo- a wheel bearing. So that was already replaced, but then mm-hmm. something, some noise is coming out of the transmission. So that's what we're trying to find out what's wrong now. <sighs> wheel bearings are not cheap. I remember... No. I remember 20, 25 years ago, replaced the wheel bearings on a car. You know, it's like 50 bucks for the bearing, you know, 80 bucks to install it. Not anymore. A wheel bearing was 850 bucks. Yeah. Do you remember That's, back in the days, what, 20, 20 years ago even, when cars were, you could fix them in your driveway? Yes. And you used to go to, well, there's a place. Do that uh, anymore. Yeah, there's a place just north, I guess, northwest of Pickering. Standard Auto Wreckers. Yeah, yeah. We used to live in there when we fix our cars. Yeah. I mean, we all drove little cheap boxes, right? That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, because we couldn't afford it. We were in college at the time and all that. And uh, yeah, those were the days, you know, everything wasn't run by a computer and you could go and buy something at the, yeah. well, the yard and fix it sort of thing. I could actually go to the yard and get a <laughs> yeah, aluminum rim because I bent the rim when I hit the curb. Oh, yeah. So right now the winter tires are on, but... Uh, for spring, I need new uh, one new rim, and uh, I'm gonna go to Dom's Auto Wreckers in Bowmanville and see what I can find. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, so out the uh, farther east of the city, but uh, yeah. yeah, we used to live in those places, and uh, back in the day, like you say, when you could fix your car and well, on your on your own in your garage or your driveway. Or, I miss that. Yeah, I miss yeah. that. Yeah, that was a good times. I can't. I mean, even, every teenager did that sort of thing, right? I can't even change the spark plugs in my in my current vehicle because you have to take portions of the engine off to get at to one get at the, of yeah. the spark plugs where you got to have a special tool nowadays and oh what a pain that's ridiculous what? yeah but anywho well i on the other hand i got something i've been asking for well not asking for but contemplating buying for a while more for our car camping or if we're going in maybe one portage or something like that and you know it's going to be raining or something you're going to be stuck under a tent all weekend uh, or under a tarp, I should say. Um, I got from the Canadian Outdoor Equipment Company a forged iron tripod and pot support. So, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's an iron tripod, and you can hang a pot off of it. I remember looking at those when we went When to we the, went there. Yeah, when we went there. Yeah. Well, I'd humming and hawed about it, and uh, yeah, I picked one up with a hook, and... Um, I assume you're not taking that canoe camping. 
like I say, only if I'm going in like one lake or something like that and setting up base camp. Yeah, I guess. Because you don't want to be doing it over tons. I mean, yeah. they're, they're heavy. These are... Um, but <laughs> mind you, if I'm going in lightweight, then realistically, I mean, I could throw it in. But you know, like it's something like this you're not going to want to do if you're you're going from lake to lake to lake to lake. Yeah. It really be... doesn't make sense. But if you're stopped somewhere, and if, especially if you know it's going to be, you know, crap weather or whatever, yeah. you're going to be stuck under a tarp, then you bring a dehydrated chili or something and you stick it in the pot and it's, then just let it... Let it hover over the let fire. Let it hover over the fire, simmer. And then, huh. yeah, I mean, it's, if it's going to be cool yeah. and wet and damp and that gives you something to warm you up sort of thing. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing or uh, have some coffee going or whatever, right? Skewer, squirrel over the fire. Well, what I was thinking of doing is making, get one of my little grills that I usually, you know, usually plant in the ground over the fire and uh, take those little legs off of it and put chains. And then the four chains to each corner oh, go up so it just to a ring yeah. and then hangs from there. So yeah, you got a hovering grill yeah. over the fire pit, right? Yeah. So I've been, you know what, I've been humming and hawing for probably three years on one of these things. And uh, yeah, I... Uh, Sorry, I didn't buy it, but my cat and dog bought it for me. <laughs> I even had it mailed to the house with their name on it. So, uh, yeah, they, they took my Visa card and then they bought me something. And that's what it was. You have such nice animals. Oh, I do. They're swell. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, you know what? We had a good Christmas and we saw a bunch of family and a lot of friends. And like I say, we got a couple of friends' birthdays over the over the. Uh, holidays as well so we're doing all of that and still got to work a bit you know but i like working between christmas and new year's because that's when uh everything shuts down sort of thing or slows mm -hmm. right down yeah so you're at work and you're catching up on stuff and it's nice easy time so but you can cruise the internet and start googling stuff and uh looking at potential gear and places to go come spring and uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> I've been off. Like, uh, last day of my work was uh, 21st before Christmas, and I don't have to go back until the 9th of January. Really? Yeah. Well, ain't that a fine how do you do? <laughs> well, the problem is, is uh, things got so busy at work over the summer that I didn't take, I only took a portion of my vacation, so I had to burn off a bunch of vacation. I had one day left and I took that just before Christmas and I used it as a shopping day and a relaxed day sort of thing, but you have to do it. I had three weeks of vacation to kill. <laughs> Need and some I help? Couldn't, I couldn't use it all. I had to carry some over into into next year. Wow. Must be nice. Well, not really. I didn't get to use it during summer. I'm <laughs> burning it off. I'm wasting it. You can go camping. You can go snowshoe hiking. Well, we're still going to, like, in a couple of days, we're, we're considering getting the kids out there and doing some uh, hot tent camping. Check out Mew Lake. I mean, they see if those yes. yurts are still available. Well, yeah, they, uh, they, they I had I haven't checked in a while, but we, I've got a big 10-man army tent, mm -hmm. and so we're just going to use that. We're going to probably go up to uh, either Mew Lake so that we have access to the heated... Uh, what, they got heated uh, change rooms and oh, yeah, washrooms, washrooms and showers. And all that sort so of, yeah. They run that all year round, right? Yeah. So plus, you know, they have washers and dryers, this, that, the other thing. So it, it, it's, uh, it's a good intro for the kids, but I'm still thinking about just going off into Algonquin Park and and uh, dragging the kids on sleds into uh, in just, just slightly off the beaten path so we're still accessible. Well, I was saying there, uh, they got that, there's the big old uh, Mew Lake airfield. Yes. Right? And yep. there's the um, tree line right next to it. Mm -hmm. So if you were to camp right there, you're still close to where your vehicles are. You're still close enough if you need uh, a warm washer dryer, that sort of stuff, right? In yeah. case it does get too cold yeah. and the kids aren't liking it, you're not that far from your vehicle. Yeah, it's pretty close. You know, so and yeah, you can, you can hide around through there somewhere and give it a whirl if you're looking for something close. The nice hiking opportunity in Mule Lake Falls. Yep. Right? Absolutely. Lots of potential up there. Lots of potential. So one of the things I found when I was uh, um, thinking, and I think you actually sent me a link to this at one point. Uh, we talked about if you're out in the early spring and you're going to be paddling, you got to be smart about it and what you got to wear. And the one thing besides warm gear, uh, a dry suit and everything, because, I mean, the water is cold 
at yes. this time of year. I mean, it's December for crying out loud. Um, definitely be wearing a flotation device. You should you always wear a always flotation device. Always have a PDF. And, and so it's, it's one of those things. Always wear a flotation device, especially in the colder seasons. Yeah. Well, there was an incident out in Comox, BC. Yes, it's 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 unfortunate. And the thing is, with uh, we're talking ocean water. This is the this is the waterways between uh, Vancouver Island and the mainland. Yeah. So this is salt water. This is the ocean. The temperature, at the best of times, is like three or four degrees. So in in that in that narrow channel, the te- the temperature of the water could drop down to about two or three degrees. Right. So that's pretty cold. Now. That would be one thing if they, if they fell in while out paddling for the day, but it wasn't during the day. No. And I don't know how you could set up a more accident prone situation than what these two gentlemen did. 1240 AM, a gentleman phoned the authorities to say that him and his buddy were out and they tipped. That's 1240 in the morning. Yes. And you're out... On the ocean, kayaking mid-December. I know. It's crazy. Like, I mean, that is just asking for, for problems. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know. Unfortunately, the, the one guy that did get out and, and were able to call authorities um, was wearing a, a, a PDF. But the one that didn't get out, and unfortunately, they ended up recovering his body, uh, was not wearing a flotation device. Um, I, I really don't know what to say when I read I know, articles like this. And and you want to be respectful because somebody is uh, missing their family member, but mm-hmm. it's such a, uh, it, it's such an easy way to avoid something like this. So we're talking late December, seawater, it's very cold. Middle of the night. They're in, just, they're in uh, kayaks. And so I don't know what the purpose was. They were, what they were doing is just south of Comox is, uh, is a place called Union Bay. So they're kayaking from Union Bay out to Tree Island. And I don't know if they were planning on staying on the island or if they were just out for a midnight paddle. But somehow in the, uh, in the open chop, in the, in the straits, they, they both managed to tip over and uh, one gentleman didn't have, like we said, one gentleman didn't have life preserver on. And uh, he didn't make it. The other guy had a life preserver on and he managed to get ashore. And I guess he must have had a cell phone on him because once he got to shore, he called 911. And uh, the the search and rescue teams set up a uh, headquarters there right on, near on a beach. And uh, they, they, they couldn't find the guy. So what they ended up doing, they were throwing floats and buoys in the water to see where the uh, the prevailing wind and currents would carry the boys and and that's how they ended up locating the body of the second person who was missing. Yeah, they they put the boys with markers, data markers, yes, uh, attached uh, to where and it, it tracked the drift of the overturned kayaks, and they landed right where the kayaks were, sort of thing, uh, and that's why yeah that's how they found them. Forty ground searchers, as well as Canadian Coast Guard and the Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue. Uh, and they're talking, it was really difficult that the head of them were saying that it was really difficult conditions for searchers, uh, to be able to travel over frozen rocks and logs. Yeah. Well, it's plus it's, the highest tide of the year. Yeah. And it's coastal, right? So yeah. it's just the, the ground, the the ground that they have to cover to walk and whatever it's, uh, you know, it's slippery, it's cold, it's a bad time of year. It's dark, mm-hmm. you know, and like you said, high tide, one of the highest of the year. So the, like, it's, uh, thankfully all these gentlemen come out and, and, you know, they risk their lives to come and rescue somebody. And unfortunately they didn't find the guy alive, but, uh, there's these 40 guys who in the middle of the night were out and risking their own lives to try and find somebody who, if he just simply had a life preserver on, he could have made it. Yeah. So, you know, what we, we had talked on another show about, uh, the West coast of Canada and how they do the kayaking and all that all year round yeah. because it's, it's, uh, nothing freezes, that sort of thing. Yeah. And this is a prime and example. I, you of know what? Do. That's fantastic to be able to do that. But all we're saying, take the precautions, take extra precautions, especially this time of year. Yeah. You know, everything's just that much colder and things happen that much faster. So, well, you know what? Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, I want to talk about, um, 
Boundary Waters, and big decision that happened there last week. You are listening to Paddling Adventures Radio on Reno Viola Outdoors. Do you enjoy getting on the water with a paddle in your hand? If so, this show's for you. Listen to Paddling Adventures Radio every Wednesday at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. and see what's happening in the world of paddle sports. Paddling Adventures Radio, whether you're close to home or far away, grab a paddle and get on the water. This portion of the show is brought to you by Algonquin Outfitters. Algonquin Outfitters, providing quality Algonquin Park backcountry adventures for the entire family since 1961. Whether you want to get on the water for a day or a week, the friendly staff at Algonquin Outfitters can help you out. Find them online at algonquinoutfitters.com or visit one of their 12 locations. Algonquin Outfitters, your outdoor adventure store, with locations in Algonquin Park, Muskoka, and Halliburton. And welcome back. Now, Derek, about 90 years ago, uh, the Boundary Waters... Back when I was a kid. Back when you were a kid. Boundary Waters uh, canoe area was um, first conserved for its wilderness yeah, values, right? first established. And it's one of the treasures protected by the 1964 Wilderness Act. Now, that's before I was born, even. Uh, it's been a favorite destination for millions uh, who've marveled at the, they say, the unique waterways and forests and a vital component in Minnesota's economy. It's where they, they uh, talk about it. Uh, 1,703 square mile wilderness at the border of Canada and Minnesota. Well, there's always been a couple of things on the border that have uh, been issues. And this past week, I guess last week, um, President Obama, in one of his last to-dos, has rejected a mining company's request to renew their lease on the southwest border of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Uh, so at least in the next, for the near future, there will be no mining on the borders, which is a, a huge deal. It's a huge win for conservationists. The Like the... Well, let's be honest. The area itself is is a hard area to develop anything in, which is what helped it become protected in the first place. It's it's a large mixture of uh, different landforms and shield and and uh, waterways and stuff like that. But in a portion of it, there was a lot of smaller areas where mining was popular. And it was these areas that people were protesting. And we talked about this, I think, about two and a half, three months ago. Yep. And there was a member of Congress who was trying to push through new rules to uh, to prevent any future mining in the area. Well, in the end, the conservationists got, they won over and uh, they they managed to, and we'll, we'll see what happens in the future. But for now, the area is protected. It's So there's no mining leases that are open in the area. There's no future mining leases that are being proposed in the area. So we're talking, it's it's now protected. Yeah, and now there's the Forest Service, um, which back in the day, they were the ones that were basically mandated to protect um, and watch over the area. Yeah. The rivers and... And whatnot. When they when the Congress established it, lawmakers directed the Forest Services to maintain its water quality, protect its fish and wildlife, and minimize the environmental impacts associated with mineral development. So mining, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and a portion of this was designated in 1964, uh, the year the Wilderness Act was passed, and a much larger area was designated by Congress in 1978. So they were, the forest area was the ones that were told, you guys got to protect this all, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's basically what they've been trying to do over all these years. Like I say, since that's uh, 50 years, yes. they've, been, they've been trying to do this. Um, and then, yeah, the government just announced that it would not renew the leasing rights to mine copper and nickel near uh, Boundary Waters. Um, there's been a lot of push on this for, for the last number of years. And heavy public opposition, they did fundraising, environmental impact studies and all that. Uh, and gearjunkie.com, uh, one of the, the, the things we've done a, a show on a while yeah. back. A couple of their contributors 
um, Amy and David Freeman, they went so far as to spend a year in Boundary Waters. That's pretty incredible. A whole year living there. Yeah. Uh, And yeah, September 26th this year, they paddled out. And, you know, just trying to draw attention to the area. Um, So there's two parcels of land that lie within three miles of it. And they're now off limits to mining. And, you know, the, the big concerns of the conservationists and everybody is the sulfide ore mine could damage um, the area. And so the they've done all their little studies and, you know, their law stuff and their legal stuff. And finally, yeah, Obama just issued a statement by uh, through the Department of Interior that mining, uh, it could have dramatic impacts to aquatic life, sport fisheries, in recreation-based uses and communities, which... You know, in our life is paddling. Yes, absolutely. You know, so I mean, absolutely. canoe trippers, kayakers, stand-up paddle boarders, you know, um, it's now protected for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, just to give you a little uh, addition to that, 70,000 people made donations or signed petitions, and the U.S. Forest Service received more than 30,000 comments during a 30-day public input period 30,000 comments in 30 days mm-hmm. so that's, I mean that's a thousand people a day right um, they've then gone so far as to submit an application to withdraw portions of the watershed that flow into boundary waters from new mineral uh, mining permits yes right so they're they've not only now trying to just protect that area but everything outside that's that's flowing in. And the thing is that the waters flow from south to north, mm-hmm. right? So anything south of is heading right into, right into, the into boundary area. waters, yeah. right? So any spills, any anything is heading north. Yeah. So for now, any mining will remain off limits. And now they don't have anything in law, but they're right now they're they're motioning a formal review. And what this is going to do is going to bar mining in the area for 20 years. So nobody can even apply to mine in the area. But 20 years from now, if they manage this motion formal review to enact something, then hopefully things things will be protected for the next 20 years, and the subsequent, uh, you know. Government won't uh, change their don't change their mind on it because the risk now is the uh, for because the main mining is in the states, and uh, we're expecting that uh, the next president is going to be very open to business to businesses like this. So hopefully they can enact something to prevent anything happening for the next twenty years. So it gives them time to come up with something more permanent. Well, see, and what this does, it doesn't stop it. And that's why they say for the next period, you know, little period of time, what this does, it shuts it down for two years while they do all their surveys and all their studies and everything like that. So then two years, realistically, they can come up and say, you know what? Forget it. It's not going to cause a problem. And they can turn turn the tables. Yeah. But but at least two years, years, that's not going to happen, right? Exactly. Um, now this area spans nearly 1.1 million acres along the Canadian border. It's one of the most visited of its kind in the United States. Um, hundreds of species of migratory birds and an active fishery. I mean, there, there's some pretty, pretty, uh, big stuff in there, but Northern Minnesota, now it's home to iron mining for decades. I mean, it's a big thing, but the iron ore Sorry, the uh, sulfide ore mine has never been built in this part of the state. And these mines can leach toxic metals. Yeah. And when that starts getting into the water, the water table and all that sort of stuff, flows south to north, like I said, you know, that's that's a big concern. Um, Any spill from the mine could contaminate more than 1,200 miles of streams. And that's horrible to think about. Like they, that's a lot that, of. That's why studies are needed, and these studies will determine whether it's viable in the future to mine or not to mine. Well, I mean, and you're looking at twelve hundred miles. That's incredible. Of streams. 
It's incredible. I mean, if that was kilometers, picture driving for 12, 12 hours at 100 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Think how much distance you'd cover. Yeah, that's, that's And incredible. picture that all, you yeah. know, I mean, not, it wouldn't be a straight line like that. Of course, no, it's spread course out. No, of course not. But that's but, a huge yes. area of water. Yes. That's gone, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so hopefully they're going to really take a look at this because they really need to be looking at this stuff more seriously now. Uh, with everything that's going on in the world, uh, you know, there, there's so many things that have an impact on the waterways and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's what should be something really easy for people to do in the recreational time, um, canoeing, like I say, we're looking at it from the paddling perspective. Yes. When I start looking at stuff like this and, and going on the internet to, to search stuff and do some research and, and whatnot, and you start going from place to place to place and following all these different case studies and stuff, you find out how many different things like this are happening. And there's a lot. There is a lot. And I mean, not just mines, but you're talking dams and, and everything else that so many things that are being built industrial wise that are affecting the waterways. Yes. And, and it can have huge consequences. And that's not on, you know, and not just from a, a paddling perspective, but from drinking water. I mean, Flint, yes. Michigan. Flint, Michigan. They So right now there's up to 13 people in the local governments that have been indicted on federal charges for the, for the loss of water quality in Flint, Michigan. So this is starting to really expand the case of water protection rights, right? Yeah. And you know what? I, I'm just doing some stuff. And if we want to bring something closer to home for you and I, because we spend so much time in Algonquin Park and a lot of our friends love it up there. I mean, that's like, you know, one of the crown jewels of Ontario here. Kearney, Ontario Graphite. Yes. There's the mine that was shut down and now they're trying to reopen over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And there was some leaking. That they're finding. Yes. Yeah, so uh, some acidi- acidified water yep. managed to find its way out of the tailings pond. Now, this, this mine was first opened in 1989. They initially sh- uh, shut down in 1994 because it was cheaper to get graphite from China and whatever. And China has China and Korea have huge graphite mines. Yep. But then re- of late, uh, China has capped its output exports exports yeah. to the rest of the world so suddenly uh graphite mining is uh is in vogue again and it's uh it's affordable and it brings enough money that they're want to reopen this graphite mine and it's only four kilometers outside of the west side of uh Algonquin Algonquin Park, Park in Kearney Ontario and the Magnetowan River flows right on by exactly right so apparently water used in the mining process runs through a tailings pond into a polishing pond where it's treated by a lime slurry to reduce the acid levels. Yes. Bring the pH level into acceptable range, that sort of thing. But in December 2015, all lime treatment and the required monitoring at the facility ceased as the company was in a crash, a cash crunch. Yes. So, so they were reorganizing. They had new management. They had new owners. It's now a uh, consortium of different uh, uh, investors. And at that time, they were they were in turmoil. And so, uh, whatever water was leaching out of the tailings pond, they stopped treating it. They forgot about it. And some acidified water, untreated acidified water, went into the Magnetowan River watershed and. Uh, and so it, it, there was, well, it wasn't a huge negative consequence, but only a little bit managed to, to leach out. And so there's new, they, they've developed new controls over this. So now they have to keep uh, up to four weeks supply of lime on hand for the treatment of the acidified water because they have the water that keeps leaching out of these leachate pits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it got so bad that the ministry, well, the ministry of environment and climate change got involved and, uh, issued a director's order to the company in January, telling them you got to be doing this and you got to do it now. Yes. And that was January of this year. Yep. They've been making frequent spot checks just to make sure that they're in compliance with the Environmental Protection Act, yeah. the Auto Ontario Water Resources Act. Um, but, you know, like say, from the other side of it, they're going, oh, you know, this, sorry, this was just a, a hiccup. 
Yes. Well, I mean, this could be a drastic hiccup. You know, when you're talking about this kind of of, of stuff getting into the into the water. Yes. Right. And so stuff like this, it just kind of brings more presence of mind to the fact that why uh, uh, on the boundary waters they want to prevent any future mining. It, it's accidents happen. You can't yeah. say that you're never going to have a spill from a from a mine. Like it happens all too often. Was it uh, 18 months ago? Or was it even that long ago? Uh, there was a mine out in uh, British Columbia that the uh, the uh, tailings pond, it broke free. The, the wall of the tailings pond washed out. It was undercut. And billions of gallons of contaminated water ran down into the lower rivers. I think it was near the Fraser River. But regardless, there was it just contaminated the whole downstream river and killed millions of salmon and fish and it's stuff like that it does happen you can't stop it you can't you can you can protect against it only to a certain amount but some accidents are going to happen yeah and i mean the less you can do but but i mean that just brings into mind what are we doing to help protect our waterways exactly i mean that's been an issue for a long time we don't want to get political about it here but um and everybody, there, you know, everybody is, is uh, a lot of people are on the side of business. It's like, you know, like my family needs to make money. Their family yeah. needs to make money. It's, and that's it, the same with the logging industry. Yeah. When dealing in Algonquin. Exactly. You hear, you hear about the logging. Well, it's people need to, to live. That's their yeah. livelihood. Generations have been logging. And well, it's same just, with the mining. Everybody who has an interest in something, they're going to make the argument for it, right? Yeah. And it's, it's. There's always two sides in every faction. There's always two sides of every argument. And what you got to do is you got to figure out a sustainable, environmentally conscious way to do big business like this, mining or forestry. Well, and I mean, it doesn't even have to be mining uh, and forestry. I mean, the North French, um, that's one of the other things I came across, the North French River, flows into the Moose River from the headwaters about 50 kilometers north of Cochrane. Yes. Right? Um and within that watershed is the woodland caribou, uh, tons of different species of birds, warblers, nighthawks, several which are of threatened species. Uh, and, and that's where they find the refuges in that area, right? Um, variety of fish. And you have the moose cree up there. And that's an important traditional food source. It's... Uh, for the moose cree band? For the moose cree band, yeah, First Nations. Um it's traditional territory for them up there. And they've been there, you know. Forever. Forever, yeah. For, yeah. you know. Um, and one of the things, the boreal watershed holds a significant carbon store. You know, and when you're talking about Ontario, uh, Ontario keeping its um, part of the parish climate commitments. Yes. We need that. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's what, you know, There, there's everything up there. And... Their efforts, the Moose Cree Band's efforts to safeguard the river date way back to 2002. And they inform, the community themselves informed um, the Minister, Ministry of Natural Resources Minister Jerry Ulett at the time that they needed permanent protection for this area. And he said, no. <laughs> really? <laughs> so forget it, rejected it. And, but the community, you know, the band uh, continued and continued. And over the next 14 years, they'd face down mining companies, forestry companies. Uh, they'd conduct studies. And they went so far as doing canoe trips to enhance the Moose Cree's traditional knowledge of the river. Okay. Which you got to think is, you know, I mean, you're, you're worried about what's happening with your land, but how much history is being lost mm-hmm. of the First Nations? Precisely. Because they're too busy fighting the, the, the big conglomerates to keep doing what their natural history exactly right so that and and I've always been big on that um and then in 2015 uh they sent a letter to premier win uh chief norm hardesty said the moose cree are not generally opposed to resource development in their traditional territory so they're talking the whole territory yes right uh, however, his first nation is determined that the health of the rivers and land they have long relied on will be protected. In that same letter, Chief Hardesty made it crystal clear that the first nation intends to protect the 66, sorry, 6,660 square kilometers of the North French watershed, 
which represents about 10% of their traditional territory and containing the last river that has not yet been negatively impacted by resource development. Huh. I mean, that's, that statement in itself is huge. Yes, it is. You know, you, you, you start thinking now there's a, a couple of big dams up that way and, and whatnot. And, um, yeah, they, some of them branch out and they've started their own businesses with guided trips and, you know, some side businesses with the, you know, to provide for their families and stuff yep. as regular do. But they are geared on protecting that water. Yeah. Which is, which is huge. They need, it needs to be done. Well, it's incredible that, you know, water is life. Like everybody needs water and there's going to be future wars over water, right? Like look at the U.S. now. They, like there's a lot, a lot of areas that are just so drought stricken. Like it, it amazes me how look much California. water. Yeah. How much water gets trucked into California? How much water gets trucked into Las Vegas mm-hmm. so they can golf in the desert? Yeah. It's just insane how much water gets wasted. And so we are making arrangements to feed water into these areas that traditionally don't have water, but we're not protecting the watersheds where this water is going to come from. Well, it's just, it just doesn't make sense that you don't protect the source of the water. Well, and the thing that really caught me, forestry companies are largely respecting the call for no logging within that watershed. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. You know, I, I think they, and, and that shows that, yeah, there are the forestry companies that are saying, you They're know what, there is, yeah. there is more to it than just the trees. We got to look after the land as well. But nine times out of 10, I think that a lot of these organizations, companies, forestry and logging companies, they've realized that there's uh there's a lot at stake and it, with it, when it comes to bad press and bad opinion and bad emotions, it's better to work with the public so that they can sustainably continue to log as opposed to cause so much destruction that everybody wants to shut them down. And, and a lot of companies and organizations are realizing this. They're realizing that you have to work with the people. You can't lay waste to the areas. You have to selectively log. Otherwise, there will be no future. And that's exactly it. And that's my, that's my whole point. What are we doing to protect our waterways? What are we doing to sustain our waterways? And what can we do to help out the people that are already trying to do this? Yeah. You know, we really got to start looking at it. And if uh, keeping the mining, I mean, you want to open a mine, there's better places than right next to somewhere like Boundary Waters. <laughs> exactly. Or right next, in, yeah. in a main mm-hmm. watershed. Or right next to, like, say, Algonquin Park, where yeah. we do our all our paddling. And yeah. one mistake can cost a lot so much of water, damage. Yeah. damage, killing the environment. Yeah, you're talking fisheries, you're talking uh, recreation, you're talking the, the the lifeblood of communities, of the, 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 the these rivers feed communities with fresh water, and we just can't afford to have contaminants flowing into people's homes. Like like Flint, Michigan, it, it's not, it's the, it was a piping and, and whatnot, but you know, it, so many people got sick and died in Flint, Michigan. We can't afford to have that happen elsewhere. No, and you start to think about it. Like I say, with the graphite mine, how how quick does that contaminant flow out and into the magnetowan and kill the environment? It doesn't take long. No. How long, long does it take for that environment to recover? That's the big time. problem. A long time. So, so yeah, you know what? If you can do anything to help out, read up on it, follow it. Do what you can. If there's petitions, whatever, you know what? Sign them because hey, once it's gone, chances are it's gone for good. At the very least, everybody should take the time to educate themselves on what is happening in these communities and what what the source of the issues are. Like when when we don't even bother to educate ourselves on the protection of our own environment, that's where we fall down ourselves. Yes. So everybody should look into and educate themselves on, I'm not saying we need to all start getting out there and hugging trees. What I'm saying is that you need to preserve the water that you're drinking. You need to preserve the water. Like I, of course we all want to go and fish and paddle and stuff like that, but it comes down to a basic need for fresh water. We can't afford to destroy the, our fresh water. Well, let's just leave it with this final comment. Back in the day, you see, you know, the, the old canoe trippers and that, 
they take their cup into the water as they're paddling by, take a drink and keep on going. How many people do you know now that you go canoe tripping with that will not drink directly from a lake? Well, you don't dare. You don't know what's involved. That's right. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a minute. You are listening to Paddling Adventures Radio on Reno Viola Outdoors. Do you enjoy getting on the water with a paddle in your hand? If so, this show's for you. Listen to Paddling Adventures Radio every Wednesday at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. and see what's happening in the world of paddle sports. Paddling Adventures Radio, whether you're close to home or far away, grab a paddle and get on the water. This portion of the show is brought to you by Algonquin Outfitters. Algonquin Outfitters, providing quality Algonquin Park backcountry adventures for the entire family since 1961. Whether you want to get on the water for a day or a week, the friendly staff at Algonquin Outfitters can help you out. Find them online at algonquinoutfitters.com or visit one of their 12 locations. Algonquin Outfitters, your outdoor adventure store, with locations in Algonquin Park, Muskoka and Halliburton. Fishing, hunting, boating, and the rest of the great outdoors 24-7, 365 on Reno Viola Outdoors Radio. Download the free Reno Viola's Outdoor Radio app or visit WRVORadio.com online. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about navigating on open water. Uh, I came across something the other day, and, and it's one of those things that you know about, but you don't know exactly what it means. And... Uh, We'll get to that in a sec, but first, so if you're out paddling and if it's a large lake or if it's ocean water, say you're on the West Coast, you're on Vancouver Island and you're doing any paddling, like anything on open water, you really have to know your weather. And there's lots of apps and everything out there that will uh, guide you towards, uh, you know, wave height, wave peak. Uh, predictions and barometric pressure and the buoy readings and uh, wind reports and stuff like that but one thing is one one thing that would boost your confidence on the water if you're on big water is knowing about the tricks of the weather and the water and uh, one of the things that I came across is called Langmuir spirals or Langmuir currents so, uh, or Langmuir circulation. So when you're out in the water, have you ever noticed on, and it, it's usually bigger water, but you see these, um, these long striation lines of like foam and bubbles on yep. the surface of the water. And it's like long lines. It's like, oh, look at the lines on the water. Those are called, that's Langmuir circulation. And some guy named Irving Langmuir back in 1927 on the Sargasso Sea, he made note and started reading up on this. And now there's, there's, <laughs> when I was looking into this, there's all these, uh, there's these math calculations that looks like something from on Big Bang Theory. It's like, whoa, <laughs> I quickly bypassed that part. But, <laughs> but the, uh, the Langmuir spirals, it, uh, what it, it's caused by is, prevailing winds and wind currents and if you once you get into it and i'm i'm still just reading up and learning more and more about this but for the most part these foam lines that you see on open water they are caused by wind action and uh, when i say wind action so you have a prevailing wind that's running across a large lake and the wind when it runs across the water pushes water and so you end up having water that gets pushed by the friction of the wind and it leaves a trough and you get a peak and as the wind blows across this it causes these these uh windrows so the windrows is just basically swirling water you, you can either have a couple centimeters or up to a meter or more depending on the strength of the wind of circulating water near the surface and what this causes is it causes a foaming action on the surface, right? Right. So you end up with long lines of foam running parallel to uh, along uh, to each other on the water surface. And these windrows or slicks are a result of the Langmuir spirals or Langmuir circulation. And uh, these spirals form in various speeds of uh, and frequencies of wind and, and wave action, right? So it, the result is uh, is these windrows and these uh, these foamy lines on the surface of the water. So what you can determine from these foamy lines is the 
Well, it's the prevailing wind. And where, where this will help you is uh, like when you see the lines take a jig or jag to the left or right, that's underlying currents moving these foam lines side to side. So, you know, if you were to stop paddling, you're going to float along these Langmuir spars. You're going to float in the direction of these foam lines if you stop paddling. So if you're usually if you're uh, out for a day of uh, stand up paddleboard or kayaking or canoeing or whatever, like you're always you know dealing with headwinds if you're on small mm -hmm. lakes, but on open water, you want to try and be as efficient as possible. Yes. You want the wind at your back. You want the, the elements, the wind to work with you to help you. And if you can read these lines, you can, if you can determine you, where you're heading out for, if you're just out for an afternoon, then you might do a little bit of fighting. But if you're trying to get somewhere, you're going to work with the wind and you can see from miles and miles away what the prevailing wind is. So, you know, if you need to get into the lee of an island or a lee of a, of a bluff or whatever, right? So basically what I'm, I'm getting at is like, if you're out there paddling, you point your compass north. And you add the direction of the windrows or these foam lines. So you add that off of your north compass and that gives you your, uh, the, the wind direction, right? And so these Langmuir spirals, they, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting when you get really down into it and read about it. It's, uh, it becomes quite practical, but it also gives you a lot more other things. And I'll get to that also. Um, so these spirals... Like I was saying earlier, they're the vortices of wave and energy and actions. The wind drags the surface, causes the, the, the peaks and the troughs. And when this foam is stirred up, it's like a biofilm. So it's, it's agitated. Oxygen mixes with the surface of the water, causes these foamy bubbles. And these mixing layers, it produces phytoplankton and bacteria concentrations in the surface of the water to go up. And this draws in larger zooplankton. So these little watery animals, they come up and they feed on these uh, phytoplankton and bacteria. They feed on it opportunist opportunistically. In turn, the, uh, the larger feeders follow up the food chain, such as minnows and whatnot, and then you get larger, larger fish. So if you want to go fishing, chances are these foamy Langmuir spirals, these foam lines in the water they are drawing in animals like waterfowl is going to come and eat the minnows. Larger fish is going to come up and get the minnows as well. So it's a feeding this, it's a multi-level feeding of, uh, of, of whatever grows in, you know, in the water and whatnot. Right. So yes, you now, get the see, whole I've, food I've chain. Seen, yeah. I've seen these in the water, but I've always put it down to underwater currents moving through the main I thought water, so too. Right. But it turns out it's the prevailing wind. The wind, it's almost like, uh, I, as I'm trying to visualize this, because I, I wasn't able to find a decent diagram online, I think of it as uh, the wind, It when it comes down and hit the surface, it forms all these, these below water slinky and above water slinky. So you got these furrows, these spinning whirls of water, and so it pulls into a line the foam and that's what the zooplankton the stuff feeds on and then the minnows and whatnot right so it's it's interesting because it does attract all the predators like waterfowl and whatnot and it get you get that whole aquatic action going on right and so if, if we're crossing a lake now some of the bigger lakes will toss our our lure out yeah behind us yeah so if we're following one of these... You should follow the foam those. and drag the lure through <laughs> the right. foam. Note to self. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So this here helps you with navigating on water. You know the direction of the prevailing wind. And if there's any jigs or jags in this in that foam line, you know that there's a current there pushing the line to the sides of the prevailing winds, right? Mm -hmm. So you can see, you would, and I've seen pictures online of these, uh, and I've seen it in person too, of the foam lines coming around a point. And it's like, oh, that's weird. It must be the current. But no, it's the prevailing wind. It's so, it's so interesting, right? So it's, you treat it as a navigational aid as well as, hey, there's food there, right? There's, yeah. So if so you're going to go like fishing. It's like a trail through the water. Exactly. It's like, it's like, it's like a topographical map, of, but of wind direction, right? Yeah. So it's just so interesting. And, and I, when I came across this, it was like, I found it so fascinating. It, it, it covers off so many areas and there's, there's still more that I have to read. And I, I think we'll, we'll come and revisit this in the spring to refresh everybody's memories. But 
there's so much science involved here. You're talking wind direction, current direction, and landform where the landforms touch and move the wind around the like mm-hmm. a, a funnels bluff it. or funnels it or whatever, right? Right. So when you see these foam lines, it's it, it's a navigational aid that you can use to assist yourself in in making your day of paddling easier. So you know that it, it, if you did the basic thing is that if you stop paddling, your canoe or your kayak, your stand-up paddleboard is going to follow these lines. That's cool. It is pretty well, cool. You need, you need to do some more research on that so we can talk about this more in the spring and we'll have another yes. little uh, interesting talk on this by uh, Derek Nye, the science guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, I thought it was just uh, just the current. So, But uh, interesting. Well, you know what? Unfortunately, that uh, brings it to the end of our time here today. It's all the time we have today. It is. It is. Uh, big thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to find us, check us out on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. And you can find us on paddlingadventuresradio.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Specht. We'll see you next time. Bye.